invite you, if you will, to take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians. You go past the Gospels and then to Acts and Romans and then to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, I'd like to remind you that we've been looking for past few weeks at God's creation of marriage, His design for marriage. We began by looking at Genesis 1 and how God created everything out of nothing, that He crowned the creation with the creation of man, Male and female, it tells us, he created them in his image. And we are unique over all of creation. And he gave us a purpose, and that is to fill the earth and to subdue it, to exercise dominion. Then the next week, we looked at Genesis 2 and the creation of marriage. God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And although Adam enjoyed a perfect relationship with God, there was something missing. So God performed surgery and created the first woman. And the key words is that she was a helper suitable for the man to be his partner. And we saw that the word helper is a military term in the Bible, which conveys the strong, the idea of the strong coming to the aid of the weak. And here, God created this helper in complementary relationship. And she was a helper suitable for him. That means opposite. So God says he's making someone opposite to fulfill that person. God thought it was a good idea to give us an opposite. So he made a woman. And he gave us the pattern for marriage. He said, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And his wife becomes the man's number one priority. And he unites permanently with his wife. And then we looked a couple of weeks ago at the premier passage in the New Testament on the subject of marriage. And that is Ephesians chapter 5. We find out in Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith. If you've received the love of God, then you can love your wife, husbands. If you do not love your wife, you don't do that in order to get the love of God. You get the love of God, and then you love your wife. Now, whenever the subject of marriage arises, questions come with it. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the chapter today, and we're only going to look at a small portion, is when the Apostle Paul is writing back to the church at Corinth to answer many questions, several of which dealt with the whole area of marriage. Now, I love the letter to the Corinthians because I can greatly appreciate the power of the gospel in the ancient city of Corinth. Corinth was a pagan place. It was known as being a very immoral city. I'm not even sure if we can think of one as a whole in America today. You can think of parts of Las Vegas. You can think of parts of New Orleans. You can think of some other places. But Corinth was known like if you're from Corinth, well, here's an idea. Whenever there was a play, a drama, and they were depicting a Corinthian, he or she was drunk. That was how they depicted it. If you were from Corinth, you were drunk. That's the way it was. And so the gospel goes there, and people are converted through the power of God. This is a first-generation group of Christians. And there were many religions there. It was greatly immoral. There was temple prostitution, was rampant. And so these new converts, or relatively young Christians are writing sincere questions to the Apostle Paul to say, what do we do about this? How do we respond to some of these things? How does Christianity relate to uh, being married or not being married and so forth? I remember when Ray Stedman, I was told a story when uh, Ray Stedman was a pastor in California. I believe it was Peninsula Bible Church. But he was an author, and, and he told of a man who came to their church one Sunday. This man was converted as an adult. He was a brand-new Christian, and he was a professional gambler. Not, well, he did not think he would fit in a church. And so he went to church this first time by himself, 
And he was very, very intimidated, thinking, oh, everybody here is so holy, and I'm, you know, I just kind of stepped out of the sewage. That's the way he felt about himself. In that sermon, Ray Steadman stops, and he reads the passage from Corinthians from another chapter that says, so these will not inherit the kingdom of God. The, you were thieves, you were murderers, you were practicing homosexuals, he says there, you were, you were adulterers, all idolaters. And he goes through this list, and it ends by saying, and such were some of you, but you were changed. And Ray Stedman read that out to the congregation and said, let me ask you, if any of those categories fit you before you're in Christ, please stand up. Well, all these people in the congregation stand up, and this guy was sitting there so intimidated, he looked around, he leaned back in the pew, and he said, now this is my kind of church. <laughs> but when we come to Corinth, when we come to the Corinthian letter, that's the way we ought to feel. If you feel intimidated or you think, well, I don't measure up or I've messed my life up too much or there's nothing here for me uh, or I've made too many mistakes, you are in the right letter, 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm only going to read the last portion of the chapter beginning in verse uh, 25. And here are some comments he's making to people who are betrothed. That is, they were engaged it's a more legal form, a binding form of engagement that they had. Beginning in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Let me stop. What he meant right there is he had not heard Jesus speak directly on this subject, but the Holy Spirit had revealed things to him, so it's still authoritative. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he would do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Okay, before I get into this, at the end of this series, whether that will be next Sunday, here's what's going on the next few Sundays. I'll preach next Sunday, then the Sunday after that is our missions conference, and Louis St. Germain will preach. The next Sunday after that, 
is um, the next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and I'll be away at a men's conference to speak up in Athens. And Michael Milton, the, pr- the professor, the president of Reformed Seminary, great pre- he will be here. You don't want to miss that. And then Easter Sunday, I'll preach again. So about two years from now, we'll get back to the series. I mean, that's what. But here's what I'm going to do. At the end of it, I'm taking all, I preach for manuscripts. So I'm going to take all the manuscripts and all the audio files and I'm going to put them on a thumb drive. And if you want it, you can get one. So that's the plan. So I, as I cut things out of the sermon today because of time, if I, I'll leave it in the manuscript. And so if you're prone to want to get something like that, it will all be available when all this is over. He starts with benefits of being single. In verses 25 to 35, the Apostle Paul, who holds marriage in the highest regard, that's important to remember. He's not down on marriage. He's not critical of marriage. He's being practical here. <clears throat> and he himself was called to remain single. Uh, Paul was not married. There's no indication he'd ever been married. And he never speaks as though he longed to be married, though they probably struggled with that. But he has the highest regard for marriage, as we see in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians and other places. But he's going to talk about some of the benefits of remaining single. As people were asking, hey, I'm single, do I marry or I'm married? Should I not be married anymore? Here are some of the benefits. One, he says, you will encounter less distress from a hostile world, verses 25 to 27. And he refers to the present conflict, the present crisis. Most Bible commentaries believe he is probably referring to the persecution that had already begun of the Christians being arrested, beaten, imprisoned. Later it would intensify. Later, after this letter was written, is when Nero would really heat up the persecution of Christians. In fact, one of the early martyrs was from the church at Corinth. Jesus had warned the disciples that they would be made outcasts from the synagogue, and an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. Paul is saying if you are single and you're going through hard times, through persecution, that's bad enough. But if you're married, it's even worse as you watch your loved ones, maybe your children, maybe your infants, maybe your spouse, when you watch what happens to them. So that's his point. Married believers who go through social turmoil and persecution will carry a heavier burden than those who are single. That's the first benefit, he says, of not marrying. Second benefit, you will experience less worldly troubles. Trouble means pressed together or pressure. You will experience less pressure in your single state. The Bible says in marriage the two become one. There's still two personalities, two, two distinct persons, emotions, temperaments. I have read, though, because there is trouble, and I'm meaning marriage in its best. I'm not talking about, I'm not ta- being sarcastic toward marriage. I've read where one counselor said, a professional counselor, for every one single person he sees, he sees 25 to 30 married people. It's just you, marriage brings with it problems and troubles. What do I mean? Added responsibilities, adjustments. Uh, Even at its best, it's rarely an easy adjustment for anyone. Then you add the adjustment of extended families. Because you don't just marry a a person, you marry a family, the brothers, the sisters, the mom, and the dad. And you bring it into your home, and that can bring trouble. And I don't necessarily mean disagreements and fights, though that might be there as well, but cares and concerns. My mother-in-law is is in a nursing home, probably in her final stages, with severe dementia. 
Uh, and that, that weighs on me as I watch it weigh on my wife. If I was single and unmarried, I wouldn't think about that. And so that, he's talking about that, the normal, natural cares and concerns that come with marriage that you don't have when you're single. Now, there are also surprises. I have sat doing premarital counseling with couples that are very methodical. And I say, well, what are your plans after you get married? Oh, well, here they are. The first year, I'm going to finish my master's. And in year two and three, he's going to go finish his master's. And in year four, we're going to save up enough to our down payment. In year five, we're going to have our first child. I mean, very methodical, very planned. Guess what happens on the honeymoon? Nine months later, there he is, our little one. There's little Johnny. Suddenly, the masters are gone. Suddenly, somebody's got to get a job, or both of them. And, and it's just, those are major adjustments. So there are surprises. I think all that, and much more, is what Paul meant. You bring with it trouble. He's not pessimistic. He's simply pointing out that marriage may cause some problems while it may solve others. Don't kid yourself, then, that life gets easier from that respect. There are more cares and concerns, not less, with marriage. Third benefit of singleness, in verses 32 and following, he says, you will be free from the preoccupations of marriage. What does he mean? Well, he points specifically of the necessity, as it should be, of the husband to be concerned about his wife, of the wife to be concerned about her husband. He says in verse 33, anxious or preoccupied of worldly things. Uh, the husband's concerned, it says, how he may please his wife, and the wife how she can please her husband. But the one who's not married is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, and how she may be holy both in body and spirit before the Lord. But the married interests are divided. They're divided between, you might say, between heaven and earth. As it should be. As it should be. That's what Paul is saying. He's not complaining. He's not saying one's more spiritual than the other. He's answering the question to these Corinthians Christians, do you think I ought to get married or not? Or remain single? So single Christians are not intrinsically more righteous or more faithful than married ones. But they are able, because of fewer family demands, normally, normally, because of fewer family demands and obligations, they are typically able to be more devoted to the Lord's work. It is not that the married believer has divided spiritual loyalties as though, well, Christ is only half your Lord, or that the unmarried person is more spiritually faithful, but practically the unmarried person, both in body and spirit, is potentially able to set him or sir herself apart for the things of the Lord more exclusively than can a married person. But it all culminates in verse 35. Here is God's will for you, married or single. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure, what does it say? Your undivided attention, undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the goal. That's the goal for all of us, regardless of our state in life. Undivided devotion to the Lord. So marriage does not prevent that, and singleness does not guarantee it. But singleness has fewer hindrances and more advantages. It is easier for a single person to be single-minded in the things of the Lord. Now let me back up, because I was asked, what's a single? Here's the definition, I think. And that is a person who is at a stage of life where they can be married, but they're not. I'm not talking about a sixth grader. Okay, a person who can be married, but is not. They're at that age. Now, I know... <laughs> 
Um, my mother remarried late in life after my father died, and that was funny. Standing in a house doing the wedding, Mom, you take Don to be your married wife. You know, I mean, I did the vows. I did the wedding for them. I never called a bride mother before. But uh, I was told of a man who went to visit a retirement center down in Florida, and a woman came up to him and said, you look a lot like my fourth husband. And he said, four? How many times have you been married? She said, three. (laughs) (laughs) Paul does not promote celibacy as more spiritual than married life. He was celibate. Now, the gift of singleness, there is a gift of celibacy. It's a gift. He refers, I believe it's in verse 7, of the gift he's talking about. Now, not everyone who's single has a gift of celibacy. The gift of singleness, the gift of celibacy, and I'm using that interchangeable, the gift of singleness in that sense that Paul refers to is that God gave him the grace to be undistracted with his single state. It does not mean he did not struggle with loneliness or maybe desires to be married. But it was not strong enough to where it it distracted from what he was called to do, which was to be a missionary to the Gentiles around the Mediterranean at that time and to plant churches. So he had that gift. Now, listen to this, and we hear a lot about it this week with the thing on the Pope and all that. There is nowhere in Scripture, there is no scriptural basis for the idea that celibacy is a prerequisite for ministry. You won't find it. It, If you try to look that up, it will not be there. Now, celibacy for service to the Lord is complemented, but it's very rare. But if, if God does call some to seek that, in, in our lifetime, my lifetime, the example of that, the best one I know of, was John Stott. John Stott died just a few years ago, but he was held up as a man. Here he was, this pastor, Bible commentary, teacher, conference speaker, who, what, for 40 or 50 years, wrote, traveled the world, and was held in high regard. Christianity Today wrote an extensive biography about him after his death. But he would say that he was able to do that because he chose to remain Uh, unmarried, knowing that if he had been married, that would have greatly limited what he could have done. Now, here's a terrible example of that, and that's George Whitfield. George Whitfield was the great evangelist and preacher in colonial America. He preached in Georgia. He preached all up and down the Atlantic seaboard. He made probably more trips than anyone in in, in his era in the 1700s. He made Six and a half trips back and forth from England to America. Can you imagine that? He died in America, so he made 13 crossings. And he died here. A Whitfield and like John Wesley and others had the, the, their, these co-workers, they had this idea that it's God's work, God has called us to this. They did not believe in anything like passion and love, and so it's all about God's work. And if God's going to have you married, it's only to have an assistant. They were strong in that. Yeah, I'm going to read you something so you know I'm not making that up. He had fallen in love with a young woman named Elizabeth Delamont. She loved him. There was no reason he could not marry her. But his personal principles, this idea about, you know, marriage is only going to be an impediment to my service to the Lord, he would not allow what was really happening in his own heart. He wouldn't recognize it for himself, and he certainly wouldn't say it to someone else. But he had fallen deeply in love with this young woman. He wanted to marry her, but he could not admit that that was really the case from an emotional standpoint. So he writes a letter to Elizabeth's parents, and he wrote a similar one to Elizabeth herself. Now, here's part of what the letter said. If you were a father of Elizabeth, what would you think if the young man said, it has been impressed upon me 
much upon my heart that I should marry in order to have a helpmeet for me in the work that our dear Lord Jesus has called me to. So I am writing in order to know whether you think your daughter, Miss Elizabeth, is a proper person to engage in such an undertaking. You need not be afraid of sending me a refusal, for I bless God that if, that if I know anything of my own heart, I am free from that foolish passion which the world calls love. He actually wrote that. Does it surprise you he was rejected? I mean, to tell, you know, I know nothing of love. This is strictly a ministry arrangement. Well, he wasn't free of that passion at all. She turned him down, and he lived the rest of his life with a broken heart. She married another man. Now, he had a perfect right to love her. And that's what Paul's saying that about the uh, down, about, is it, they've not done wrong if they burn with passion. A lot of people say, wait a minute, he says it's better to marry than to burn as though you can't control your sex desire, so go ahead and get married. Now, it's really much more positive. He's saying if you burn with passion, there's a proper passion, get married. Get married. Whitfield, I wish someone... Who am I? I mean, I can't hold a candlestick to George Whitfield. I think he's one of the greatest characters in church history. But he, at this stage, and I quote someone else, he was an idiot. He, re, he should have gotten married. He should have told her how much he cared for her. But he, his thinking was wrong about marriage and about passion. Okay, here's some practical guidelines for marriage seekers. Not guidelines. This is some of my counsel, some from the meaning of marriage, the book, some from my own experience. You have to realize dating is a very recent American invention, the whole system. Most of the world, uh, for most of the time, has had arranged marriages. Uh, it's still that way in most cultures, or in many cultures. Uh, romantic love was certainly one of the reasons, but the most prominent reasons were social and financial motives. In other words, you, you had to marry uh, with a family as a connection. You had to marry someone with whom you, he could afford a, a home and children. And by the late 19th century, the motive for marrying for love had become more culturally acceptable and dominant. And so there arose a system called courtship or calling, where a man would call on the young woman, uh, and they would spend time together on the family's front porch or in the parlor. And... He was invited into the woman's home, and there he saw her in the context of family. The family got to know him in that context. Interesting, it was the young woman's privilege to initiate the young man to call. She would say, why don't you call on me? So that's a change, well, or used to be a change. So somewhere at the turn of the century, uh, dating developed. The first time the word appeared in print was 1914, so it's just 99 years old. Now, here was the change. The young man did not so much come in, but took her out, out to places of entertainment to get to know her there. So dating individualized the whole process. It removed the couples from the family's context. Uh, it also changed the focus of romance from friendship and getting to know a person in a family context uh, and character development. Now the focus changed to spending money, being seen, having fun, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that dating in and of itself is not a very good way to get to know another person in a full-orb sense. It's a very one-dimensional on a surface level. And so that's, that's just to understand that. Secondly, understand the gift of singleness. Uh, the main thing with Paul is that God was helping him to grow spiritually and to be fruitful in the lives of others despite being unmarried. 
And so to have the gift of celibacy or the gift of singleness uh, is not necessarily lifelong. It may be for a season. It may be that God gives you grace for a particular period of time, but not permanently. Um, In fact, there are many ungodly reasons, especially for men, who choose to remain single. And I want to mention a couple of these. I don't mean to sound harsh, but it's just too obvious. The first cause that I would cause an ungodly cause to remain single is laziness. We as men, um, we, we have a besetting sin of laziness, most of us do. It's, it's a strong temptation. Now, in this case that I'm describing, here's a man, he has an easy job, he's got a nice apartment, he's got free weekends, he's got no hassles and so forth. And so he, he really likes, some men really like that arrangement. But the reason they like it has nothing to do with being more diligent in serving the Lord. They like it because they're lazy. And it provides lots of time to watch the ball games, to watch the movies, to play their video games. And, and it's dangerous to drift into such a lifestyle that places maximum value on recreation and entertainment. And then the work becomes strictly the paycheck to pay for the tickets to go to the ball game, to go to the concert, and to pay the subscription for the premium TV channels to watch the entertainment. And I'm, not, I'm really not trying to sound sarcastic or harsh to anyone, but at the root of that often is laziness. And I was a singles pastor for, for years, and, and I got to know guys, and I would talk to them about that. And I was amazed at the defense mechanisms sometimes, that the, that the singleness had nothing to do with serving the Lord. It was he liked what he liked. He liked his comfort. Now, the second ungodly cause, I think, and often when men choose to remain single, is resentment because of their wounded pride. And that is that we men do not take rejection very well, uh, even though we need to hear it at times. And if a man has been, for lack of a better term, dumped by a woman, or a woman has been unfaithful to him, he may find it very easy to withdraw from any kind of significant interaction with the other sex. And so his resentment cycles downward, and before, or really after a period of time, he may find himself in a position of being completely unable to approach a woman. And it's not because he likes women, it's because he's grown to hate them because of his resentment. Now that is, the Apostle Paul would not compliment either of those states. So don't read this thinking he's praising this uh, without taking into fact that it's to be diligent to serve the Lord. Now, neither in, the, in neither of these cases are these men using their singleness as an opportunity for Christian service. In reality, they're only serving themselves. But there is hope. And if you're in this situation, or someone close to you is in this situation, you need to learn to follow Christ and to rest in Him and to direct Him. Now, I'm married at 22. Uh, that was, I was the first in my whole group of all my friends. I was, uh, they said, Chip, when, when you got engaged, it... it it really rattled a bunch of us. You know, I mean, it really put a lot of pressure on a bunch of guys, they said. But I knew from the time I was about 17 years old that I needed to be married. Now, you may think that... Now, that sounds strange, given the... Well, there were a lot of things strange about it. But I meant I was swimming in freedom, but I was drowning in loneliness. Now, it wasn't get married just to solve your loneliness. I wanted to serve Christ, but I wasn't very effective. I mean, my singleness, I wasn't effective at all. I would say since being married then and, and now, 35 years later, one week of service to Christ in my married state is far more efficient and better and deliberate than even when Barbara goes out of town for a few days. 
I just don't handle that well. And where I don't handle well is I lose any momentum. And then I get the big screen. And I, I mean, I would go right back into that description I gave a few moments ago of laziness and lack of motivation and so forth. Um, that's just my own personal example. Uh, so do not, it was not that, oh, I need to get married. Go, go find a warm body and have, a, have somebody give the vows right then. I mean, there's also somebody I'd gotten to know for a couple of years who happened to be on the scene uh, as well. Third guideline or suggestion, and I'm going to run out of time, but this will it'll be on the thumb drive. Do not allow yourself deep emotional involvement with an unbeliever. Now, the Bible from start to, to finish everywhere assumes that believers should marry believers. There's nowhere promoting missionary dating or mission, definitely not missionary marriage. So in verse 39, when Paul says about someone whose spouse dies, that they're free to marry, it says, only in the Lord. You find that phrase in the Ephesians and elsewhere, marry in the Lord, meaning marry a person who is in the Lord, who's a believer, who's in Christ. That's what it means. You go to 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now that phrase comes from the Old Testament where there was a guideline, a rule of civil law that says do not yoke an ox and a donkey together. For a simple reason that these two animals of different height and stride, they will not plow a straight line. So it takes that picture and puts it with believers and unbelievers and binding relationships, not just marriage. It doesn't even mention marriage in 2 Corinthians 6. But there's strong biblical reasons for this biblical rule not to get deeply emotionally involved with an unbeliever. Here's why. If your partner doesn't share your Christian faith, then he or she truly doesn't understand it as you do from the inside. They don't understand it if they're not a believer. And if Jesus is what is most important to you, and if he is central and the Lord of your life, that means that your partner doesn't really understand you. And he or she doesn't understand the basic motivation of your life, the wellspring of your heart, and they don't understand that's behind everything you do. Now, no one can perfectly know their spouse before you marry. But when two people marry who have a common faith in Christ, then each one knows the most significant thing about the other person's motivations and their views. But if you marry someone who doesn't share your most deeply held and core beliefs, then you will repeatedly make decisions that your spouse will not be able to understand. When you'll say, I prayed about something, or I think the Lord wants us to do that, and that will be hidden and mysterious to the other person. Also, the essence of intimacy in marriage is that you finally have someone who will eventually come to understand you and accept you as you are. They will get you. But if the person is not a believer and you are, that person will not get the very essence of your heart. In other words, there will be a binder on that relationship. There will be built-in walls where it can only go so far. Therefore, if you marry someone, knowingly marry someone who does not share your faith, then there'll be only two options open to you. Here's what they are. One is you will more and more have to lose your transparency about your faith. And in the normal, healthy Christian life, you relate Christ to everything you do. But you will think, well, you will rightly think of Christ, whether you're watching a movie, whether you're making decisions, you'll think about Christ of what you read that day, 
And if you are naturally transparent about all these things, your partner is going to be annoyed and tedious and even offended, and he or she will probably say, I had no idea you were a religious fanatic. You know, therefore, you'll have to hide it. Therefore, you'll have to hide it. And that leads to the second worst possibility, and that is you move Christ out of the central place in your life. You let your heart for Christ wither, and then you deliberately don't think about how your Christian commitment relates to all of life, and you demote Christ from your mind and from your heart, because if you keep him central, you will feel isolated from your spouse. Now, both, both of these outcomes... I tell you as a pastor, are bad. They're both terrible. And so that's why you should not deliberately marry someone who does not share your Christian faith. Now, if you say, I'm already in a situation where I've married an unbeliever, go back and listen to last week's sermon, because that's what 1 Peter 3 was about, is how do you then bear testimony to an unbelieving husband? I'm out of time. So I want to end with this. And that is the real issue that Paul points to throughout here as he says the time is short. But what's important is not, look at verse 31, for the present war form of this world is passing away. What did Paul mean the time is short? He truly believed that Christ could come at any time. Well, we know back now and say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. He meant the time is short. Well, 2,000 years have passed since then. He talked about the attitude to have. Virtually the last words of Christ to us in the Bible are these very words. Behold, I am coming soon. And again, yes, I am coming soon. I am 57 years old. I am ahead of some of you. I am behind others of you. I cannot remember my children's names or our 10 grandchildren's birthdays. I don't have a clue. But they are, in, they are on my Microsoft Outlook, and so that's what I rely on. But I vividly remember kindergarten. I remember grammar school. I remember my teachers growing up. I remember all sorts of things from back then. And you know how fast that goes by when I review it? Like that. It is gone in a flash. When we are in the next world and we look back on this world, all of history will seem to have gone by like that. And so the thrust of this chapter, what Paul is saying, what is most important, what is most important is looking ahead, whether you're married or whether you're single. Yeah, that's important, but it's not most important. What's most important is that we live with a forward look that this life is not all that there is. As he says, this world and all of it is passing away. So live as though you're not really living. Uh, you've got a wife, act as though you don't have a wife. It's hyperbole to say what's most important, related to what's most important, is preparation for then. Marriage as we know it now will not exist in heaven. I know that's very disturbing to some people. And some people get mad and upset when they hear it. But that's what scripture teaches my job with my wife is to help her get there. Her job with me is to help me get there and our children and all others that we can take with us. But when we are all there one minute in the next life, we will look back at this life and it would have gone by like a blur. It will be so fast. It will be so fast. So what should we do? We should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to us. Let's pray together. Father, it may be that before we gather again next Lord's Day, uh, that some of us will not be here. We will already pass from this life into the next. Uh, and it will definitely be true of all of us eventually. 
So we pray with the passion of the Apostle Paul that that saw the issues of this life as important, but not, not of ultimate importance, not of primary importance. And so I pray for all of us here, whether single, whether married, whether divorced, whether widowed, whether married for the second time or more, whether desiring to be married and not, whether too young to be married, whatever our status, may we do, as is instructed here by the power of your Spirit, to be men and women with undistracted devotion to the Lord, whatever our status in life. Bless us, we pray, toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen.